Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Uh, for today's episode, we're doing a roundup of the latest news in election law with two wonderful guests. Last week, the Supreme Court issued an opinion in FEC versus Ted Cruz, which deals with campaign finance regulations. And there is also a redistricting case in Alabama and a North Carolina case dealing with the increasingly important independent state legislature doctrine. To cover it all, we're honored to convene two of America's foremost experts in election law. John Fortier is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the author and editor of After the People Vote, A Guide to the Electoral College. John, it is wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And Rick Hassan is professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine, although he's moving to UCLA later this summer. And he's the author of Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Rick, it is great to have you back on the show. It's great, as always, to be with you. Why don't we begin with the Ted Cruz election law case? Rick, tell us what the court held and how you think the case is important or not. So uh, this case involves a small piece of the McCain-Feingold law, which uh, your listeners may remember is a campaign finance law, the last major piece of campaign finance legislation that the uh, Congress uh, passed in the early 2000s. Uh, part of that law has already been struck down uh, in a case called Citizens United versus uh, Federal Election Commission, dealing with spending limits applied to corporations. Uh, but this involved a different provision. Uh, this is a provision that says that if you are a candidate running for office and you lend your campaign more than a quarter of a million dollars, then you cannot be paid back more than that quarter of a million by funds that you would raise after the election. Now, that sounds like a very specific and arcane provision. Let me explain what the thinking is behind this. The idea is that if you've already won in your office and you're now an office holder, people are trying to curry favor with you and you've got a personal campaign debt because say you've loaned your campaign a million bucks, people who want to get on your good side might give you campaign contributions, which you could then use to pay yourself back. And so Ted Cruz uh, loaned himself, I think, $260,000. So there was $10,000 that he couldn't pay back uh, beyond that $250,000 with money raised after the election. He argued that that infringed on his First Amendment rights uh, as a candidate to engage in political activity. And the Supreme Court on a six to three vote agreed, uh, applying kind of the the usual rules that the conservatives on the court have been applying, where they're, they're looking pretty closely at the connection between uh, the government's interest in preventing corruption or the appearance of corruption and the First Amendment rights of whoever's challenging a law. The court said, this law is not justified by those anti-corruption purposes. And so uh, already, if you're a person who's giving money to a campaign, you can't give more than $2,900 for any particular election. And so that individual contribution limit does all the anti-corruption work necessary, and the government can't have this additional, what the court called prophylaxis upon prophylaxis, meaning uh, additional protection against corruption that was infringing too much on First Amendment rights. Uh, three uh, liberal justices on the court, led by Justice Kagan, dissented and said that 
these kind of contributions after the election present a special danger of corruption. She gave some examples of what looked like people currying favor with elected officials, to which the majority responded, well, that's not corruption, that's just government accountability. And so just to finish up, in terms of the importance of all of this, I wasn't surprised by the ruling. It's very much in line with what the Supreme Court has done. The court didn't seem to break any new ground, which for me as a supporter of reasonable campaign finance regulation was kind of a victory. They didn't make things even worse in terms of making it harder to pass reasonable campaign laws. And so I think this opinion is, in the scheme of things, kind of a blip. It'll get a paragraph in our uh, election law textbook. It's not going to get more than that. John, what are your thoughts on the case? Do you agree with Rick or not that the case is a blip that will make little lasting impact and say more about Chief Justice Roberts's argument that the only acceptable reason for restricting political speech is to prevent quid pro quo corruption and Justice Kagan's dissent that even if there's no actual quid pro quo corruption, the public will perceive corruption in post-election payments directly enriching an officeholder? Well, I do agree with Rick that it, it is a blip in the direction the court has been going. So, so not surprising. And it, you know, it's not the issue that anybody is going to want to, uh, the hill that anybody's going to want to die on, uh, in terms of their, their positions on this issue. But I do think there, there are a couple of other things that are, are relevant here. Uh, of course, the court generally speaking has, has emphasized the concept of, of speech, uh, and how some of the limits of McCain Feingold are to be struck down because of, of uh, the importance of free speech. But if I go back to the, one of the earliest cases uh, that uh, challenged McCain-Feingold, that was dealing with uh, the so-called Millionaire's Amendment. And that was uh, a way that the court, and this goes back a ways, has held that you yourself uh, could give a lot of money to your campaign. You could spend yourself. You're not limited by those um, $2,900 increments that other people are. You're allowed to speak on your own behalf. And there was a complicated framework where the uh, original law had a system where if you gave a certain amount of money to your own campaign or you're using a amount of money that, that others could raise more in that case. And the court struck that down saying we were trying to equalize and ultimately sort of limit that ability to speak on your own behalf. And one thing I think that, that um, Chief Justice Roberts emphasized in his opinion was that these loans to campaigns are, are common uh, and that uh, one of the arguments for them is that uh, Sometimes an outsider has real trouble competing with it with an incumbent, and to try to artificially limit them and limit their their political speech in, in certain ways by limiting their own spending uh, is is particularly difficult for for campaigns that that need to get off the ground like that. Now it's true I think that the the dissenters are arguing that this looks a little different after the uh, election. I think the court. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, "Well, look, you're just paying back the money. This was money that was already spent." Uh, it's not, you know, particularly different, but I do think that this idea in the back of their minds that um, this would ultimately really limit the the the, the need or the the ability of, of individuals to spend on their own behalf, and sometimes to get a campaign off the ground that was limited uh, as a, as an outsider, as a challenger, as someone who didn't have all the advantages in an election campaign. Rick, your response to John's uh, observations about the court's concern with incumbency protection, and maybe around on where you think campaign finance law is going. Several of the justices have questioned Buckley versus Vallejo, which held that limits on campaign contributions didn't violate the First Amendment, but limits on campaign spending might. 
Justice Thomas has questioned uh, uh, limits on anonymous speech. What what do you think the next significant uh, debate in campaign finance will be? Yeah, first, let me say I don't disagree with any of how John characterized the the arguments of each side. I, I do think that the Supreme Court made the mistake back in Buckley. Uh, I argued in a book that I wrote in 2016 called Plutocrats United that the big concern in elections uh, with uh, campaign spending is not corruption, but instead inequality. Uh, most of us don't have more than $250,000 to lend to our campaigns. And so this is not a, a real concern for us. But for those who are very wealthy, they can have outsized influence over who's elected and what policies are adopted. And, and that's not necessarily a concern about corruption. The court calls it accountability. I call it you know, giving extra uh, influence to people who are very wealthy. So um, the court is not going to revisit that distinction about equality. And in fact, um, the trend, if anything, is that the court is going to strike more and more campaign finance laws down as violating the First Amendment, reading corruption ever more narrowly, reading the standard of scrutiny that applies to review of campaign contribution limits more strictly. And uh, as you mentioned in your question, uh, there's a, a new concern about campaign finance disclosure laws. Now, back in Buckley, the Supreme Court upheld very, very intrusive disclosure laws uh, that require, even if you give a, you know, a very small amount of money, uh, you give $200, that information is publicly available. And the Supreme Court had said in Buckley that campaign finance disclosure is justified by three interests uh, that the government has. One is preventing corruption. If you can see where the money's going, you could look for corrupt deals. Uh, second, providing information to voters. So if you know that the NRA or Planned Parenthood is backing a candidate, that might tell you something about the candidate's positions and, and whether or not you support them or not, and enforcing other laws. So we have laws, for example, that bar foreign contributions in elections, contributions from foreign entities, governments, individuals. Uh, disclosure helps to find those uh, illegal contributions or illegal spending. In a case that the Supreme Court decided last summer called Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, uh, the Supreme Court said that the exacting scrutiny that applies to disclosure laws is pretty strict. It wasn't a campaign finance case, but already we're seeing it having implications in campaign finance cases. And even though stalwart conservatives on the court like Justice Scalia and conservatives like Justice Kennedy long supported disclosure as a more narrowly tailored way to deal with the problem of corruption and to provide voters with information, the Supreme Court is changing. And there are at least two and potentially as many as five or six justices who might be willing to allow for more anonymity, strike down more disclosure laws, believing that requiring disclosure of someone's name violates the First Amendment. And, and part of the reason that this is changing is court personnel, but also part of the reason it's changing is technology. So back in the 1970s, if I want to know if John Fortier gave $100 to a candidate, I'd have to trudge my way down to the Federal Election Commission offices and look it up, which I was certainly not going to do. Um, in the 1980s, I could pay some uh, companies that would go and aggregate that data. Today, you know, anyone with a smartphone can find out exactly how, how many contributions people have made and for how much. And so that is more intrusive. Uh, and so the courts may uh, view that availability of information as a reason to change the constitutional analysis. John, do you agree with Rick that there may be a shift in how the court views disclosure laws uh, that uh, at least two and maybe six justices might question its constitutionality? And what are your views about whether or not disclosure laws violate the First Amendment? 
Well, I, I do agree with Rick that I don't know if there are five votes for it. And I also don't know what it means to, to cut back on disclosure. It may be there are five votes for, for some modest cutting back. Uh, but, but the direction, I agree with, with Rick, is in that direction. And, and Rick pointed to technology as one factor. You know, I guess I think the other thing I would point to, and this is sort of broadly, more broadly felt in the conservative movement or on the Republican side, is that uh, anonymous speech is sometimes valuable because uh, if you have to disclose yourself, you are then opening yourself up to bullying, uh, people trying to get you to lose your job, and the, the type of thing that, that conservatives are voicing displeasure with in other areas of our, of our political life. And so, you know, I think that is something that is higher on the scale for, for the conservative justices. I mean, we do have cases at the extremes, uh, cases of Nazis and others who, who make the case that their giving should be anonymous because they are so unpopular that, that harm could come to them. Uh, and this may be a move to, to sort of extend that a bit. I, I don't know how far it will go, but I do think that that is not only there in the legal world, but is also something that uh, you just hear in the, in the political world, which is, I think, affecting that, that sort of discourse. Uh, well, our next case is Moore versus Harper. It's a case involving gerrymandering in North Carolina. The court may soon decide whether or not to hear it. And among other things, it raises important questions related to the independent state legislature doctrine, which we discussed on We the People a few weeks ago. Rick, tell us what's going on in Moore versus Harper and what are the stakes? Sure. And let me back up for a minute. And, and I think I need to give a little background on something the Supreme Court did in 2019. Uh, which is, uh, it decided a, a case called Rucho, uh, Rucho versus Common Cause. And this was a case where the Supreme Court finally, after a decade and a half of being uncertain about the question, um, held that claims of partisan gerrymandering, that lines to draw congressional districts or state legislative districts or local districts, uh, could violate the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause by discriminating against voters of a minor, uh, of, of the party that's on the short end of the stick, or maybe violate the First Amendment by giving people less political power based on their views. The Supreme Court said this was a non-justiciable political question, meaning this is a question for Congress to deal with, for states to deal with. It's not a question for the federal courts to deal with. In the aftermath of Rucho, uh, there were renewed efforts to try to get state Supreme Courts to rein in partisan gerrymandering based upon uh, state constitutions. And a little bit of background here. Um, although every state is bound to follow the United States Constitution, a state constitution can provide even more protection for people. So, so long as there's not a conflict between the U.S. Constitution and the state constitution, a state constitution could provide more protection. And so some people have argued in a number of states that drawing district lines um, violate provisions of the state constitution. For example, many state constitutions have provisions that guarantee free and fair elections. And so we've seen in a number of states courts striking down partisan gerrymandering as violating state constitutional provisions. This most recently happened in New York. But this case, Moore versus Harper, involves North Carolina. And here you need a bit of political background too. North Carolina has a Democratic governor a Republican legislature, and a Democratic majority elected Supreme Court, or at least judges who are seen as being part of the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican Party. In North Carolina, the Democratic governor does not have a 
veto over uh, redistricting plans. They're just passed by the legislature. And so uh, unlike in Pennsylvania, where a Democratic governor could veto a Republican legislature's plan, the Republican legislature was able to get its plan through. People challenged that plan and said that it was a partisan gerrymander that favored Republicans and it violated the state constitution. State Supreme Court agreed, and the state Supreme Court imposed maps for congressional districts that it said would not be partisan gerrymanders. Uh, a challenge to this law, now this get, really gets in the weeds, but it's a really important question. A challenge to the law argued that the, the state Supreme Court applying the state constitution didn't have the power to do that. Well, why didn't it have the power? Because in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, it says that Congress can set the rules for um, congressional elections uh, and override what states do, but otherwise state legislatures have the power to set the rules for congressional elections. And so the argument is that when the state Supreme Court applying the state constitution overruled what the state legislature had put in place, that violated Article 1, Section 4. This is known as the so-called independent state legislature theory. And it's this idea that the legislature in this context doesn't function like the normal uh, legislative body that passes laws that get approved by the governor, uh, that are subject to judicial review in the state and are subject to the state constitution, that they have a kind of plenary power that unless Congress overrules them, they can do whatever they want. The Supreme Court was asked to intervene in this case early on and block the maps that the North Carolina Supreme Court had put in place. The court didn't do so, but a number of justices expressed the view that the courts should do so. And Justice Kavanaugh, who didn't agree for a stay, did say that this was a serious issue. And so uh, within the next month or so, I expect the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not it's going to hear this case. If it does, it's going to have big effect on the power of state courts versus state legislatures in this area. And I'll make one more point before turning it back to you, which is that this issue is important not only when it comes to congressional elections, but there's a parallel provision in Article 2 of the Constitution that gives state legislatures the power to set the manner for choosing presidential electors. And this issue came up a number of times in the 2020 presidential election, where it was argued, for example, that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court didn't have the power using the Pennsylvania Constitution to extend the days for receipt of ballots for the 2020 election by three days to protect people's right to vote under the state constitution. So if the court takes the Moore case, it not only would have implications for congressional elections, but also for presidential elections. Thank you very much for that very helpful introduction to the case. You've introduced us to a whole bunch of doctrines. First, can state courts interpret their state constitutions to regulate partisan gerrymandering more broadly than the U.S. Constitution might? Uh, second, uh, what is the independent state legislature doctrine as it relates to congressional elections and what are the implications for presidential elections? And third, when should the court intervene, which involves a case called the Purcell uh, case, which Justice Kavanaugh invoked. Uh, John, help us disaggregate all these important points by giving us your thoughts on the Moore case. Well, first, let me um, start with something Rick said and maybe go back a little longer historically. Uh, it, I, I'm thinking back to a time after the Warren Court. Justice Brennan wrote a, wrote a famous law review article where he uh, said that may, maybe this activist uh, Supreme Court is waning, and maybe it will come the time where 
uh, the moves to protect civil liberties in other areas will have to come more at the state, state constitutional level. Now, that was 45 years ago, uh, but in some ways it is prefiguring where we are today. And as Rick said, I, I do think partly because of just the way our politics is broken down, we have a number of places where Republicans can call the, control the state legislatures, sometimes Democrats, the governorship or the or the or the courts in particular, um, you've seen moves like this. And maybe he wasn't particularly thinking about redistricting, but but this this goes across a number of areas. Uh, on the on the independent state legislatures doctrine, uh, Rick is also right that that this has a number of different applications and a number of different clauses in the Constitution. And I guess I I don't think it's necessarily one doctrine because I do think there are some differences between the the language and the, and the history in, in some of these different areas. Uh, but, it, but it's true, absolutely, that Republicans in a number of areas and conservative justices are, are looking to potentially latch onto this. And the difficulty is, again, um, if you pass a law and go through the legislative process in a state, uh, the, the typical way in which um, that is implemented by the executive of that state and then ultimately um, judges from the state, uh, rule on various aspects of this and and federal courts take those rulings very seriously um but are there times when the state legislature is really more independent is either independent from the legislative process or is sort of insulated from from having a court look over it is it, it does it perform a direct federal function and um just a, a few things one in, in the redistricting case we do have a, an earlier case which least got to part of this where some some back in the 20s uh, asked, well, what, what could the governor veto a, uh, a redistricting law passed by the by the legislature or, or is the governor not relevant here? And then the court said it was. Uh, so this case, maybe maybe the, the uh, legislature is not as independent. As Rick mentioned, in North Carolina, that point is kind of moot because the governor in particular doesn't have that power uh, in this particular state. But the question, again, that some of the, the conservative justices are asking is, is it possible that some of these courts, maybe they're being more activist, maybe they're going too far. I do want to talk about it in two other areas. I mean, I think we should talk a little bit about the elector uh, issue and slates of electors. But I think more the way I think it's been coming up in the course of an election is with the Purcell principle, which you mentioned. And that basically is that at the, at the federal court level, the more conservative justices have been advocating that there be a period of time in which federal courts are really very reluctant to get into uh, just making decisions to essentially what they would say change the election rules while the while the election is in process. And and that is a principle I think that is an important principle that we want to play by the same rules and we don't want to uh, change things up at the last minute, maybe benefiting one side or the other. Of course, there can be emergencies, and one could always bring up some particular case, but I, I think it's an important and good general good principle that our litigation would be better done before the election. And so, so the courts have been more or less applying the, the federal level. The question comes though, what if a state court then comes in and, and makes changes to state election law? Um, that law is also applying to the same elections that are going on at the federal level, but applying to the same elections that are going on for, for reps and for senators and and ultimately for the for the presidential race, um, and you know there there you have a mix on the conservative side with uh, with Chief Justice Roberts being more reluctant to go in that direction, but perhaps there are five who would go that way. So I think that's the area that you may see the court try to say is there a is there a way of describing Purcell for the state 
state courts or their way of doing something during the election. Um, and then on, on the presidential elector case, look, I, I think generally speaking, it's a, um, it should all, almost never or never happen that a state legislature should swoop in at the end, end of an election and declare a slate of electors to be um, one way when maybe the electorate said it was the other. Uh, but I, I do think that that is a case where the Constitution does give a more direct power to the state legislature. There's clearly, state legislatures in the past have just directly appointed their electors. They haven't required the governor's signature. They haven't required uh, the courts wouldn't would rule on them. Um, we had some other provisions in picking the the senators when when we did that by state legislature, where again that was really they were the final say. And so, while I think it would be good to find a way to avoid them being involved so much, I do think there are some real constitutional issues in some of these clauses in the in, uh, in the Constitution, which are a little different, that, that the legislatures are a little more independent in some aspects um, or retain some power that's more independent than in others. And that that's one that I think we're going to have to argue out or make some compromise on rather than just say that the, that the, that the legislatures don't have a power at all. Well, at least three really important issues on the table uh, Rick, the first is, do you agree with John or not that the Purcell principle is generally a good idea and that it's being applied even-handedly by the court, just as Kavanaugh noted that the court applied it both in the Alabama redistricting case and in North Carolina? And then what are your thoughts, Rick, about the independent state legislature doctrine as applied to uh, redistricting and to presidential elections? And do you agree or not that it's stronger or more textually based in the context of presidential elections than in the case of redistricting. So um, I guess it's good that John and I won't agree on everything. So here's a place where I think we have a little bit of disagreement. First of all, I, I think I'm the one that uh, coined the term the Purcell Principle, uh, writing an article um, called Reigning in the Purcell Principle and arguing that it's a bad one. And the reason I think it's a bad one, uh, I take off my election law hat for a minute and I'll put on my remedies hat, which is another one of my areas. When the Supreme Court decides whether or not to grant emergency relief normally, it balances a number of factors. And those factors are typically the likelihood of uh, success on, on the merits, uh, irreparable harm facing the parties and the public interest. What the Purcell principle does is that it elevates one factor that goes towards the public interest, the, the interest in finality and lack of confusion when it comes to election rules over all of these others. And what I argued in Justice Kavanaugh makes a move in this direction in his recent separate opinions we're writing in these cases uh, is that we need to kind of domesticate the Purcell principle and bring it back into the normal rules that apply to determining when emergency relief should be available. So imagine that, you know, just before an election, a state changes a rule that disenfranchises thousands of people and somebody goes to court to complain about it. The court shouldn't say, well, you know, it's only two days before the election, so we can't do anything, so we're going to let you be disenfranchised. I think, no, you have to balance. You have to figure out likelihood of success on the merits. Is the person actually going to have a good chance of winning their case, in which that would be a, a real strong reason to intervene? Uh, so that's one problem with Purcell, is that it elevates one factor over others. Certainly, I agree with John and, and with the court that voter confusion is a relevant factor to consider. When you're changing election rules just before the election, people can be confused about, do I need an ID to vote? Do I not? Or, you know, Where's my polling place? But it's one factor among many. But we've also seen, in terms of the Purcell principle, a kind of 
mission creep or personnel creep in the Alabama uh, registration case, which uh, you mentioned a minute ago, and I think which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, it was four months before the election. It wasn't something imminent. Uh, there were lots of cases where the uh, you know changes have been made. Primaries. This was also for a, a primary. Primaries have been postponed regularly by courts when there are constitutional or statutory problems with how a districting plan has been put in place. So, to even if you agree with the Purcell principle and you want to elevate the, this factor above others in cases where there's an imminent election, there wasn't an imminent election there, and so that I think it was hugely problematic. On the independent state legislature doctrine, John mentioned this uh, briefly, but let, let me emphasize that we go back to the 1920s, go as far as recently as 2015. The Supreme Court has not understood the legislature as being a free-floating body that gets to have powers outside the normal lawmaking process. In fact, in 2015, in a case called Arizona Independent Registering Commission versus Arizona Legislature, the Supreme Court held that Voters in Arizona acting through the initiative process could take away the power of the state legislature to draw congressional districts and hand that power to a, a nonpartisan redistricting commission or a, a bipartisan redistricting commission. So the legislature would have no role in redistricting. And the Supreme Court said that's fine because legislature in this context means the legislative process. Now, that was a five to four decision. Chief Justice Roberts was the lead dissenter, and he wrote a very strong dissent. Maybe they're going to have to overturn that precedent. Maybe they would have to overturn uh, Smiley versus Holm, the earlier case involving the, the role of the governor. There have been a number of cases that have recognized that the legislature doesn't get to act outside the legislative process. Now, on John's concern that sometimes a state court might go too far, I do agree that that's a possibility, but there's a different way to deal with that, which is to say that when a state court so mangles state election law as to deprive a voter or a candidate of the rights they had before, that violates the due process clause. There's a 1994 case called Roe versus Alabama, where we start, uh, saw the Alabama Supreme Court manipulate the rules to affect who was going to be elected to that, that same state Supreme Court. And the federal court stepped in and said, you violated the due process clause. So I think we do have a way to rein in these um, uh, state courts when they go so far away from what their state constitution means, what the state law says. One more point specifically about the North Carolina case. North Carolina, the North Carolina legislature approved the uh, state constitution that gave power to the state Supreme Court and approved statutes giving power to the state Supreme Court to review redistricting. So even if you take the view that the state legislature can't have its uh, rules overturned without its approval, it's given its approval because it's handed over the power to do this to the state legislature. So I think this is a not a particularly good case for the Supreme Court to take up this independent state legislature doctrine. And as much as I like the idea of getting this clarified before the 2024 election, it's quite possible the court will decide this is not the case to resolve this issue. John, maybe one more round on your thoughts on the application of the independent state legislature doctrine to congressional elections in particular, where you noted that the, the textual peg in the Constitution may be less explicit than the presidential context. Do you think it should be applied in the North Carolina case? And what are the limits of the independent state legislature doctrine, given Rick's argument that the legislature expects the courts to interpret election laws in this context? Well, look, I, I do agree with Rick that that uh, this may not be the best case for uh, the court to take up if it were looking to uh, to clarify the issue. Uh, 
he's right about the point about the legislature authorizing the courts to act. Although the conservative justices have emphasized that the, these courts are acting in a way on, on very, very broad principles and that they are not acting um, legislatively in a sense. And, and I, I think what they're, what they're struggling with is trying to figure out, um, again, is it something that because the Constitution does give something to legislatures uh, on election uh, election matters, that there is some deference to those legislatures over courts that would that would come in and, and uh, misinterpret them at the end of the day. But I, I don't necessarily disagree with Rick that that um, there would be other ways for the court to to take these things on. I do think it's going to get very complicated for them to. Well, certainly to carve out a very strong independent state legislature's doctrine, but I do think there are different parts of the Constitution where they're going to find history looks a little bit different. And in this case, you know, maybe maybe the Purcell principle, because I I think that's different than what they're doing here in North Carolina and in Alabama, where it's a question of well, do we have time to to make a new map? Where arguably we do have more time to this question of whether things are going on, whether the election is actually going on. Rick's absolutely right that sometimes there might be an egregious problem that needs to be dealt with that comes up at the last minute. But I will say that you know, we've seen an explosion of, of election litigation. Uh, and much of that is happening um, in the election period. And I think to the extent that we could push and try to clarify those things before the election, uh, and, and have the rules be relatively stable, that would be a good thing. And I think the court being able to grab onto uh, that, whether it's the connection between uh, Purcell and, and some independent state legislative doctrine or just a kind of a Purcell that, that also applies to courts uh, to state courts in a certain way uh, would, would generally be beneficial given how much of an explosion that we've had. Rick, any final thoughts you want to share about the independent state legislature doctrine? And then please introduce us to our final case, uh, which comes out of Alabama. So, yeah, let me turn to the Alabama case. Uh, so uh, we've actually talked on an earlier podcast about this case. So I'll, I'll just be very brief. Um, it's very complex, but uh, I'll try to boil it down. The Voting Rights Act, Section 2, uh, which is part of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court first interpreted in a case called Thornburg versus Jingles in 1986, uh, provides that when minority voters have less opportunity than other voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice, then they could be entitled to drawing a district uh, for Congress or for a uh, state legislative body or a local legislative body where they have the opportunity to elect a representative of their choice. These are sometimes referred to as majority minority districts or opportunity districts. There was a challenge brought against Alabama's latest redistricting plan. Uh, Alabama has a pretty large uh, African-American population, but it only has uh, one congressional district that is uh, a majority-minority district. Um, and the claim was that there were enough uh, black voters in the state of Alabama who live close enough to each other and who vote in the same ways that they should be entitled to a second district. And um, a three-judge court uh, made up of, uh, I believe, a majority of uh, judges appointed by President Trump uh, said, yeah, you know, we've looked at Thornburg versus Jingles. It has a multi-part test that sets forth uh, when uh, you need to draw a district. And we believe that a second district has to be drawn. 
and and ordered the state of Alabama to draw this second majority minority district. Case went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, we're too close to the election, as we've already discussed, applied the process principle. Nothing's happening uh, with this case, uh, with, with these new lines now. We're going to block it. Chief Justice Roberts, interestingly, dissented. Uh, Roberts is someone who has not been a strong advocate of a muscular reading of the Voting Rights Act. He was the one who wrote uh, the decision in 2013 in Shelby County versus Holder, which held that a, a different part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, was unconstitutional. But Roberts here said, look, the lower court applied the traditional rules under the Supreme Court Thornburg versus Jingles case to find that we need to draw a second district. They applied the correct rules. We should not impose a stay here. We should let this district be drawn. But let's take the case up and let's consider whether or not we need to change those rules. So uh, Roberts lost on that point, but the court did agree to take up the case. The court will hear the case next term. And uh, the issue there is whether they're going to stick to this framework that the court set up in the 1986 Jingles case, or instead, uh, Alabama has offered, uh, and I can get into the technical details if you want, but Alabama's offered a, uh, a test for when Section 2 should require the creation of all these districts that would be very difficult for plaintiffs to meet. And if this test were imposed, I think we would see many fewer majority-minority districts in Congress, in state legislatures, and in local governments across the country. So there's a lot riding on this. Uh, how you interpret that kind of opaque language from uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and apply it in the context of redistricting now apparently is up for grabs, even though the Supreme Court settled it uh, initially many years ago in that Jingles case. Uh, John, what are your thoughts about the Alabama case, and uh, what are your thoughts about the correct way to read that complicated language in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? Well, I agree with Rick in a couple of areas. One, you know, I think the, the Purcell question here is is different than it is uh, at the time where you're holding the election. And, and the question of whether you have enough time to, to put the map in to potentially delay primaries um, I think there's a lot more give um, now, and the court didn't have to come down this way. Although I do think related to that is the the, the idea that conservative majority is is likely to take another look. They say that Justice Roberts and others said that they that they think that the the jingles criteria are not as clear as they might be, and by that I take that they're going to they're going to change them to some extent. Um, I, I do think there is also and. Um, you know, a, a broader movement where we have had um, a big change in this country where uh, many African-Americans have been elected to the House of Representatives uh, and many of them in non-majority minority or even significantly minority uh, districts. Uh, and that has had a couple of effects. I mean, one, I think on the, say on the more the Democratic side where uh, districts that often the African-American incumbents wanted to have to be very strongly African-American, um, there's now a sense that it's not as good for, for African-Americans or for the Democratic Party to have very, very packed districts. And, and that, that argument is, is made a lot of headway where Democrats are now willing to have sort of more districts that are less packed. Um, that the flip side of that argument uh, for, for Republicans is that I think they, they argue that it's more possible, certainly, for, for African-Americans to get elected in lots of places. Um, even We even have a significant number of African-American uh, Republicans likely to come into the next Congress, uh, three, four, five. Uh, that would be a big number for, for Republicans, but certainly many others who are elected in, 
in you know well majority white districts and i think that is in the background of some of the thinking about how the court might relook at these these jingles criteria where um this question of polarized voting that that still probably does exist in the traditional way in some places and maybe actually in alabama and some places in the deep south but maybe maybe not as broadly across other places where there are more um cross-racial coalitions uh, getting people elected. And uh, I'm not, I, I think the, what the court said in this decision is, is very slim. So they're not telling you what, exactly what they're gonna do, but to, to think that they are going to be moving out of this, this business a bit uh, or, or being able, to, circumscribing it to more um, traditional cases that might be very polarized, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see if the, if the court were to go in that direction. Rick, remind our listeners what the relevant language in Section 2 about minority voters electing representatives of their choice is, um, what the Jingles test says, and how the conservative justices would reinterpret it, and whether or not you agree with John that it makes sense to reinterpret it in light of the fact that voting may be less polarized than it was in 1982. So, uh the language of Section 2 itself says that a state can't pass a law that uh, deprives minority voters of the same opportunities as others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. In the context of redistricting, what the Supreme Court said in Jingles was, uh, in order to find that there is a Section 2 uh, violation, the first thing you need to do is satisfy what the court called the three threshold factors. And one is that the the minority group is large and, and geographically compact enough that you could draw a single member district in which they would have the chance to elect representative of their choice, that the white majority usually votes in a way that um, prevents minority voters from being able to, to elect representatives of their choice, and that the minority group is, is cohesive politically and they would vote together. Uh, and if you put the second and third together, that is that there is racially polarized voting. So racially polarized voting is required. And so Section 2 has within it, as interpreted in Jingles, already an out for situations where there's no more racially polarized voting. You can no longer meet the Jingles criteria, therefore you don't have to create the district. If someone can prove those three threshold factors, the court looks at it, what's called the totality of the circumstances test to determine whether or not there's a violation, which looks at things like were there racial appeals and campaigns, what's the history of discrimination, et cetera. That's the test right now. And um, John is right that there are different political views on whether that's a good test or not. But the point is that the Supreme Court enunciated this test in the 1980s. Congress has amended the Voting Rights Act again since then, and it has affirmed that test. And it has worked under the idea that this is the test that applies. The Supreme Court's decision in this Alabama case is a statutory case, not a constitutional case. And it should apply the statute as Congress wrote it and as it amended it. Uh, in the uh, early 2000s. And so if there's change to come, it should come from Congress. And that's a really a policy choice uh, to be made. What Alabama is arguing is that when you're looking at those jingles factors, uh, rather than look just at whether the group is large and compact enough in this racially polarized voting, you should ask, would this plan have been created if um, a state had been drawing lines in a race-neutral way? 
That's a totally off the wall, not at all in line with either the language of Section 2 or the history of Section 2 or the understanding of Congress of Section 2. But it's something that might appeal to the more conservative justices as a way of trying to take race out of the Voting Rights Act. And it's hard for me to express how perverse it is to argue that you would take race out of a statute that is deliberately race conscious that was enacted to deal with past racial discrimination against these minority voters. And so what Alabama... Uh, what Alabama's test would do is essentially say you're only going to find a Section 2 violation if you could have uh, you know, n- not drawn a plan that um, uh, would satisfy race-neutral uh, principles and, and still achieve these same goals. It really uh, turns the Voting Rights Act on its head. And there, you know, there have been lots of other attacks on uh, Section 2 in the last few years, including, I believe it was Texas, that argued that uh, private plaintiffs don't even have the power there is not that to even sue under section two there is no what's called private right of action so there are a lot of what i would consider to be off the wall attacks on section two that in the past wouldn't have gotten the time of day at the supreme court but with a supreme court supermajority of six justices many of whom in the past have shown hostility to the voting rights act some of whom have suggested that section two itself is unconstitutional these arguments go from being off the wall to on the wall And I'm afraid that when the court takes up this case, it's going to uh, seriously weaken Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act as it applies to redistricting, just as the court in last term's Brnovich case uh, weakened Section 2 as applied outside the context of redistricting. And that's a case that we talked about on an earlier episode. Thank you so much for reminding us, first of all, that you had coined the phrase Purcell principle and for using the on-the-wall, off-the-wall distinction, which I think was coined by Jack Balkin at Yale Law School, and we want to give full credit to everyone on We the People. John, what is your response to Rick's argument that Congress relied on the Jingles test when it amended the Voting Rights Act of 2006, that change, if it's to come, should come from Congress, not the court, and that asking whether a line would have been created if the state had been drawing lines in a race-neutral way is perverse and turns the Voting Rights Act on its head since the whole point of the Voting Rights Amendments was to require Congress to take race into account. I do agree that, look, our, our political situation is very different in the sense that that Congress, uh, unless we were to have very different majorities and get rid of the filibuster, would not would not be unified in the way that it was before. And changing the law is, is uh, highly unlikely one direction or the other. I agree with Rick that the court is going to look at this somewhat skeptically, uh, but I suspect that they are not looking to move away from uh, this root and branch, and that uh, the likely, more likely um, way the court is going to do is to, to work somewhat within the Jingles framework, maybe in a way that Rick wouldn't like, but is, but is just looser about the way in which it, it defines polarized voting, um, the cases that would, that the, the places where they would expect to have require majority minority districts would be a smaller number of cases. Again, if Justice Roberts, whose general take has been somewhat more incremental is, is the fulcrum on this. Um, you know, I could imagine that this is a way in which the, the uh, section two is sort of chipped away at, but still is preserved in a certain way. So, uh, I mean, generally speaking, I think the court would like to be out of some of these cases more as well. And so limiting the scope of where it is, I, I think, is another goal of theirs. So I don't disagree in a certain way that, that uh, I don't think we're going to change the law. Uh, I think the law has a race-conscious view of, of how uh, remedies are to be made. Uh, the court may introduce a, a bit of a, a colorblind 
uh, constitutional test to sort of shade what the what the law says or, or to say that some of the aspects of the law need to be interpreted differently. But I, I guess I'm not expecting them to come and overrule the Voting Rights Act or overrule Section 2 with one of these theories that Rick is talking about. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this very broad-ranging and illuminating discussion. Uh, Rick, we've talked about the Ted Cruz campaign finance case and the North Carolina and Alabama cases. Uh, I, I think you disagree with the court in, in all three cases. Um, what are your closing reflections about what we the people listeners should think about where the court is going in these election-related cases? It's going nowhere good, Jeff. Uh, I... Uh think that the worst place to be if you are a strong supporter of voting rights and reasonable regulation of elections is before the current Supreme Court. Uh, whether you're talking about campaign finance laws or redistricting, we are talking about the Voting Rights Act or um, claims of voting rights protected by the Constitution, the Supreme Court has shown increasing hostility to uh, reasonable regulation. It has, uh, just to take the example of the Ted Cruz case where we started, uh, the court waxes poetic when it talks about democracy and rights when it comes to wealthy individuals being able to influence our elections. But yet it is unsparing uh, in its protection of states when plaintiffs come in and try to make uh, voting rights claims. Just a few years ago in a case called Abbott versus Perez out of Texas, the Supreme Court said that, uh, this is an opinion by Justice Alito, that um, we should presume the good faith of legislatures uh, when we look at laws that are challenged as being restrictive of voting rights. And I think that that has it exactly backwards. The court is concerned about incumbency protection when it comes to campaign finance laws, but but little else. And, and it turns out that in our polarized world today, unfortunately, we have lots of voting laws that try to either disenfranchise people, make it harder to vote, that uh, give the wealthy, lots of power over elections, and that limit the kind of tools that are needed to preserve American democracy. And so I feel today that the Supreme Court is uh, not the protector of voting rights that some of us would want it to be. And that if we're looking for protection of voting rights, the solution is going to have to come elsewhere, uh, from Congress, from states, through political activism, through the initiative process in places where that's possible. But even there, as we see, with cases raising issues like the independent state legislature doctrine. It's not clear if the Supreme Court is going to become a further impediment to the promotion of democracy in the United States. So uh, at this moment in time, I remain very pessimistic about the role of the courts in pr strongly protecting voting rights or allowing reasonable campaign finance laws. John, the last word in this important discussion is to you. Uh, what are your thoughts for We the People listeners about the Ted Cruz North Carolina and Alabama cases, where I think you're more sympathetic to the court, and how should they think about where the court is going on election law? Well, I guess I, I want to go back and focus on where I think the court is going to have the most action during the next election, and that is, again, in this question of what types of election litigation go forward uh, during the two or three months before an election that are there potentially to change uh, election laws. Um, and we did see, of course, in 2020 uh, with, with COVID, um, an extraordinary situation where people could argue that we needed to make these emergency changes left and right. But I think in general, the tendency has been to have a significant election litigation that goes up to the very minute of the election 
a day. And I, I think that's that actually has been a problem that the court is reacting to something uh, that's appropriate here and and uh, how it exactly finds a way, if it does, to, to limit state courts from doing what it's been trying to limit federal courts from doing, um, I think is a tricky question because I, I think the, the independent state legislature's doctrine is not some monolith and there, there are some aspects of important um, prerogatives that they have. But I think the court is going to find itself in trouble if it, if it wants to enshrine that as, as the big principle. But I do think uh, the, the court and how it um, preserves elections in another way by creating a space where election law is relatively stable before the election uh, with only exceptions for certain emergencies, I think that would be a good thing for the court to do. And that's, that's where I think, um, even though we'll see lots of little cases now with redistricting, that's where I think we're going to see case, you know, cases every two years unless the court finds a way to, to create a space for uh, a little more of a zone where we don't have as many of those cases at the last minute. Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and John Fortier, for a civil, illuminating, and really productive discussion about complicated issues involving election law. This is a topic where civil debate is in short supply, and you've both provided a model of it. John, Rick, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, John. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Colin Thibault, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple. Recommend the show to friends and colleagues. And come visit the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. We just opened the incredibly inspiring First Amendment tablet, and I would love for you to see it if you're near Independence Mall. Uh, we're open Wednesday through Sunday from 10 to 5, and there are also great exhibits on the 19th Amendment and the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's just the most inspiring place, and it would be wonderful, we the people friends, if you were able to see it. And always remember, at the same time, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on your generosity, your passion, your engagement. Those donations, the small ones and the notes, are so meaningful in signaling your membership in our community of lifelong learners, so please keep them coming. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.